today, Lucky? And no, no, Jared is preaching on Sunday live. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I knew that. I knew that. Are you sure you're okay there, Angelo? Yeah? You're really sharp today. Your brain says time is long and you don't know it. <laughs> That's what you call a parallel thought. Don't get so close to me, Sherry. Where are we? Page 80. Page 80. Wow, you guys got far. 80. We only had Joanne and I, so we moved fast. <laughs> oh, yeah. All the talkers were gone. <laughs> <clears throat> well, again, <clears throat> to, uh, to kind of frame what we're doing, we're talking about Christ in creation which again, I think is, uh, you know, is, is the thrust of John's introduction and, and Paul's comments to the Colossians, uh, that we see, uh, we see Christ as the, uh, as the agent through whom creation comes, that he is the, he is the active agent in creation as the word God brings creation into being by speaking. So, uh, so I think there is much of value to, uh, to the first 18 verses of John chapter one, uh, to ponder about, uh, kind of the, the meaning of creation and Christ's role in it. Um, but <clears throat> again, I, I think one of the things that I most appreciated about Fleming Rutledge was her ability to, to think in a Trinitarian way about all of the activities of God. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, to see, both creation and redemption and, uh, and its corollary new creation as being an enterprise of the three persons of the Trinity, not just one. Uh, oftentimes, one of the things that you hear in, uh, in theological statements these days is that in a desire not to genderize uh, the Godhead, that that the terms Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are are transposed with Creator, Redeemer, Sustainer, and so the you know the first person of the Trinity is depicted as the Creator, the second person as the Redeemer, and the third person as the Sustainer, but in fact all three persons are involved in all the operation of God, that God is not divided ever. Uh, and that uh, is one of the real strong points that uh, traveling with Jim Martin, which is kind of the backdrop of uh, Shirley's picture, uh, is that uh, is that he, he kind of... Uh, 
goes on a rant at some point in every trip about uh, about contemporary music's uh, depiction of the cross as the father turning his face away and takes you to Psalm 22, which is quoted by Jesus at the cross when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And, and it is often called, described by people as the cry of dereliction or the cry of abandonment. And, and yet, if you read Psalm 22, what, what God says about the one who is experiencing this, uh, this terrible place is that he does not forsake him. And that Jesus quotes Psalm 22 back to the high priest and the members of the Sanhedrin who are mocking him by quoting Psalm 22 in his presence is that, you know, he says, you know, you're right. You're right to quote Psalm 22. You're wrong because you are the mockers. You are the ones who are doing the very thing that, you know, you're, you're kind of hurling, uh, that my situation is a reflection of God's abandoning me. To the contrary, God is, is rescuing the world through me, that we are in this together and that he is not and will not turn his face away from me. So again, to spend some time both in John 1 as well as in Psalm 22, I think are critical in thinking about the, the great activities of God uh, in terms of, uh, of the operations of the Trinity and having all three persons involved in all of the operations. So, um, right. can, I make a, can I make a point? Sure. Um, and yet, Jesus became sin for us. So Absolutely. there had to be, because sin is not allowed into God's presence, there had to be some kind of separation between the Father and the Son in in that, because He became sin, um, and and sin doesn't come into the into the holy presence. So it seems to me that that yeah, I understand the point about Psalm 22, but how do you resolve that when if Jesus became sin for us, um, yes, to redeem us. Um, but sin can't be in the presence of God. So there was some kind of separation. Well, I, I think that what, again, it would be sort of my, my understanding of hell is that many folks think that hell is, is sort of the absence of God. I think right. is that, is that hell is the presence <clears throat> of God in, in judgment, in wrath. And so, uh, and so didn't I, Jesus take on our judgment? Oh, I think he does bear our judgment, but it is, you know, but it is not, uh, it is not an abandonment by the father of the son. It is that he, he bears, he bears the curse or consequence of our sin, uh, that he may open the way that we can be not only forgiven, but cleansed and become the bearers of his spirit, which is what Adam and Eve were created to do. Uh, so again, it is, uh, 
it is a, a loving relationship between father and son, even in judgment, that he knows he is not unmindful, that he is bearing the, he, he offers himself as the sin offering, which God accepts. Well, I mean, I mean, ultimately, it is God taking on human flesh, so... Um, it, you know, understanding that Trinity is just going to be. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, mind expanding. Uh, and, you know, and I think again uh, that perhaps there is an analogy to parenting is that when your children incur judgment <laughs> and wrath, you, you don't cease loving them, uh, but you seek to work with them uh you don't abandon them but no, you, but you do turn your back on the sin i mean oh, you, call, you call it for what it is yeah and, yeah and so and there is a very real consequence which is why jesus has to die you know it is it is necessary is the language of the scripture uh that he be handed over uh to the hands of sinful men and who will do all kinds of terrible things to him and then deliver his people. Um, that there is a, a sense of, of combat with darkness that he wins, which again is sort of John 1 language, uh, that he was the light uh, and that the darkness cannot overcome it. Um, but it is, uh, you know, and the, the father as judge does preside over him bearing the consequence of sin, but it is, it does not create a rift between the father and the son that the father and the son are in redemption together. So, you know, how that, how that completely plays out, as you say, is kind of beyond our ability to fully understand, but, what we cannot do is we cannot go to the point where we say that that the father rejects the son. Well, I agree with that. I think the, the other thing that you can take from that also is that when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, it may appear like that. Uh, the apostles oh, thought yeah. that. We can feel like that when we're in the midst oh, of trials and tragedies. But what we find out, though, is that Jesus wasn't forsaken. That's right. He was, he was restored. So, so even if you take it with understanding it, in, and even actually even in light of Psalm 22, it appears that there is abandonment. But at the end of it, it there's restoration. So, Absolutely. So even if Jesus is saying in that moment that he's feeling forsaken, even if he's not just holding it back, to the Pharisees because of what they said. The bottom line is that the lesson in it is that you, I'm not forsaken. Right. That, I, what, that Jesus was restored and that from that we can have that same comfort that even though we may feel that we have been forsaken in yes. whatever tragedy we're in, that God will restore us when we're his child. So either way, you're not forsaken. Yes. Yep, I would agree with that. Um, well, we're at page 80 in intimacy. And, and again, intimacy in seeing and 
discerning, I think, the presence of Christ in creation. Uh, so, I think important for us to think about second person of the Trinity, primarily, that he wants us to see in creation, and how we interact with the second person of the Trinity in and through creation. So, <clears throat> so we have talked about the gift of time and the gift of place up to this point. So now here is intimacy, and I think really dealing with the personhood, both of human beings as well as of God. <clears throat> After forming and placing us, the necessary conditions for living, assigning us work and commanding us, that is plunging us into a life of freedom, God introduces us to human relationship, brings us into intimacy with the other. God announces, quote, that it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper as his partner. Genesis 2.18. Just as our launch into a life of freedom was prefaced by an assignment of responsibility, working and caring for the garden, so our launch into a life of intimacy is also prefaced by an assignment, this time using language. God formed animals and birds and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Verse 19. The first use of language in the garden is naming <coughs> the animals and birds. It has been suggested that Adam, by naming the animals, was the first poet, but I think that comes later. Given the present context, it is more likely that he was the first naturalist. Naming identifies. Naming, when done well, captures something of the essence of the life so named. And let me, let me kind of pause there for a minute. Um, again, one of the one of the things that I appreciate about C.S. Lewis's uh, The Magician's Nephew about the creation of Narnia is that he talks about uh, God creating by singing various notes, musical notes. And with each different note, a different thing was created in response to that note. And I think if, if that is valid, then what it seems to me that Adam is doing is that he is, he is discerning the note of creation and then responding in language that corresponds to the note uh, so that he's, he's in tune with the rhythm and the notes that God actually sings. And, and again, I've told you, countless times about the tuning fork experiment that they do in elementary school where they line up the tuning forks and the teacher strikes one and all of the tuning forks in response begin to vibrate according to the rhythm of the one that was struck. And that that is very much, I think, how not only music works, but language is intended to work is that God is the originator of the notes and the words. And we 
perceiving those notes and words then respond to him and so uh so i think that you know adam's naming of the animals is sort of that first word response that is volitional and and driven by by intellect and perception uh that Adam perceives accurately, he sees clearly and responds appropriately to what God has said, which creates what God has made. Uh, so I don't know if that's helpful to you, but I think it's really helpful. I think I think that really describes in a I want to do this with the kids in my ministry now. <laughs> because it really does illustrate what reading the scriptures and prayer does yes you get god's word into your mind and into your spirit and then you pray it back to god and it, and it's just like a circle of communication then which is i think really goes to that point where can you get tuning forks so can, can i tell you i'll just tell you a little bit about music okay they, they call those overtones okay there are many notes in one note, and they're called overtones. So, and that is the way you distinguish what we call timber, the different sounds. So if a flute plays a C, you could say that sounds like a flute to me. And a violin plays the exact same note, exact same note, and they're perfectly in tune. You say, well, that sounds like a violin. How come? They're both exactly the same note. That's because of the overtones. What overtones are there? How loud are they? How prominent are they or not prominent are they? So, I mean, it's kind of a great analogy. The the, the tuning fork is a great analogy. Yeah, because, because the note it rings impacts it so much and impacts it in different ways. It's not exactly the same. Those different tuning forks won't be exact. It won't be as loud, or won't be, you know, they'll, they'll just be different. And they may depend in part on what they're made of and how exactly they were made. And which is what God does with each of His children. He uses our personalities yeah. to advance His kingdom in different ways. He takes. Yeah, you could say takes, something to me. Yeah, you say something yeah. to me, I get an impression of it. Okay. Mm -hmm. It's a different impression. I think he has another different understanding of, of what you're saying. Um, it's unique. Hey, Sarah, Amazon sells them, the tuning forks. I want to look it up. I really like the yeah, idea. Yeah, they do. They do. I'll come to the, I want to come to your class when you teach that. That'd be cool. <laughs> I may I get brave enough to do a video of it. Yeah, cool. oh, yeah. exactly. I'll, come with, I'll come with my base. <laughs> Oh yeah, that would be freaking awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so, but anyway, so that's, you know, I, I think one of the other pieces that I want to comment on in the first one is, oftentimes the creation of woman, sounds, uh, sounds like, secondary, in status because of the language of helper. I think he tries to overcome that as he talks about partner. But one of the things that's important, uh, I think, for us to understand 
is that God himself takes on the title of helper. Uh, that this is not, you know, so I think it is in Hebrew, that's probably clearer uh, that we see, we see God as helper, uh, not in a subservient way, but in, uh, but in a, a committed partnership covenantal way, uh, is that they are in this together. Uh, they are both fully invested in this relationship, but it is not a sign of subservience, but a sign of commitment. Um, is and, so, and that, sorry. Go ahead. And, and that God, and that we're made in the image of God, male and female. Exactly. You know, I feel. I think that <clears throat> the offense of having the male figure as father is really only a result of the fall. It, it would, should never have been. It should never have been uh, an objectionable thing to have male be some kind of fall. Yes. Um, and the fact that you know God establishes a um, an order of rule within the family, with the father as the head, that's it's only objectionable because of our sinfulness. That's right. Um, and and honestly, the way the Bible was separated in categories in that in those chapters too where they put submit one to another in a separate area of scripture and then they just start on the wife yeah, exactly <laughs> should have been together and and these little faults that people you know i i don't know that they did it intentionally but the fact that it is separated in that scripture yes it leads to misunderstanding yes um and so because of our sinfulness and particularly today is, I mean, it's just the seemingly hatred of anything male mm. is, is a result of sin and, yeah. and, and distortion. Um, so I don't think it's a good thing to, to say, we're going to call creator redeemer. Yes. He's that too, but Jesus was creator. He participated in creator. Exactly. So you can't call the father creator. Yes, he's creator, but so is Jesus. That's right. So, so is the, is the Holy Spirit. Oh. That's right. Okay. Oh, well, here we go. We're, I'm we're muting myself. Uh, <laughs> no. This. <laughs> so. this is not going to be the same, Sarah, without you. <laughs> okay. I cannot <laughs> mute. <laughs> Fear not. <laughs> and a name is particular and calls attention to the particular, the, quote, nature, the specific. Two friends enter a forest. One sees a mass of trees. The other sees spruce and oak and pine and elm. One looks at the ground and sees tangles of needles and brush. The other looks down and sees Bloodroot and hepatica and aren't arnica or arnisa? Arnica, uh, I think. Arnica. Okay. One looks up and sees a blur of motion through the leaves. The other looks up and sees a red-eyed vireo, a McGilvery warbler, and the least flycatcher. Which of the two is more alive to the garden and more in relation 
to the life spilling out and reverberating <clears throat> all through it in colors and songs and forms and movements and to God who planted the garden and put us in it. And which of the two is better trained to exercise the glorious freedom of obedience in the context of the intricate necessities of the place? Got to tell you a story. I was with my grandson Colton out in the backyard and the kid loves being outside. I mean, he's, so as we were outside, there was a dove that was on the, on the wire. And, uh, and so I pointed out the dove to him and he, he saw what kind of bird the dove was. And then the dove made its call. And so I taught him that doves say boo-hoo. And so, so we kind of did it at the right pitch and he practiced it. And then sort of as soon as Penny got out there, he tried to teach Penny what doves say. And so then when Margie was over there days later, he tried to get Margie out there to show her the doves and teach her the doves song. And no matter how she did it, how perfectly she did it, it was not right. It was <laughs> so no, no, Graham. It's like this. You know? <laughs> That's cute. <laughs> so, but you know, but it is interesting to see again that there's a place in in little children for this stuff to go. That you know, if they if they begin to get eyes to see, they see stuff they didn't see before because they didn't know but once they know they can't not see what they saw or not hear what they heard and so i think that's part of the the wonder of the scripture too is that once the scripture gets into you you're kind of you're kind of hooked you know you can't you can't help but be interested so so here we are the men and women who train who train me in naming what is in the garden, seeing and hearing the proliferation of life around me are as important as those who teach me to know and understand the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. John Muir in his journals, Annie Dillard exploring Tinker Creek and Wendell Berry working his Kentucky farm take their places alongside Moses in Genesis as companions in acquiring fluency of language in the creation garden. Lauren Wilkinson and Lucy Shaw are as important as Carl Bart and P.T. Forsythe and John Calvin in helping me feel at home in this world that is spoken into being and formed into the purposes of salvation by the Lord God. By naming the living creatures, but naming the living creatures is only the first step on the way to relational intimacy. The naming, wonderful and useful and important as it is, is not enough. God's language assignment also exposes incompleteness. The naming, a precondition for intimacy, does not in itself produce intimacy. Creatures named don't know their name. They themselves don't speak. They don't answer, and they're not answering 
exposes a need that mere naming cannot fulfill. A need for relational answering, for intimacy. The unfulfilled need is expressed succinctly in the Genesis sentence, but for the man, there was not found a helper fit for him. Verse 20 RSV. A helper fit for him in the context suggests a person who can also use language, who can answer back, who can converse in short and equal. However glorious the animals and birds, they cannot engage us in conversation. We need another whom we can be over against and in relationship with, a helper fit for him, suggests a, quote, fit. Yeah. Connecto. Connecto. Uh, a creature other than me, but enough like me to be an intimate relationship, marked from the beginning, unlike the animals and birds, by the use of language. And so, the Lord God made another human, a companion, to fill the need for intimacy, a helper fit in this garden of necessity and freedom that is our own. This is not simply another creature to name and identify and care for, but a person with whom we can be intimate. In contrast to the dust used to form man, a rib, a bone taken out of the critical center of the body is used to form the other, the fit, the woman. The man's immediate response to this other is by means of language. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And again, in Hebrew, the, the word for man is ish, and the word for woman is isha. So again, just like just like the word for for man was Adam, and the word for the dirt or the dust was Adama. So you know this comes from that. So they're of the same stuff. Well, when uh, Adam saw Eve, he went, "Whoa, man!" Exactly. <laughs> I, I thought you turned yourself off. <laughs> a voice from above. <laughs> Earlier, the man used language in naming the animals and birds, but we were not given the words. These are the first words of human speech reported to us. In these initial Genesis chapters, we have been hearing God's word in profusion. God creating, God making, God resting, God blessing, God commanding, now we hear the first human words to be reported, and they turn out to be words of intimate recognition. Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, and words of intimate relationship, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Significantly, these intimacy-expressing phrases come to us in the form of poetry, our basic intimacy language. 
the language used by gurgling and cooing infants, by lovers, by prayers. This is not the distancing, objective language of prose, but the involving, participating diction of poetry, revealing who I am and drawing the other into personal revelation. <laughs> Thus, the creation gift of place, man and woman placed in the necessary garden for work and freedom and language, and now crowned with the dignity of intimacy. And again, I, you know, you all have been with me long enough to know my, my sense is that the whole garden experience before the fall is an act of rescue, that God creates an enclave in the midst of the darkness and the chaos from which to operate and ultimately to expand, to fill the whole earth, driving the chaos and the darkness back until it is no more. And the whole earth becomes the realm where God's will is done as it is in heaven. That, that that's the objective of all of it. Uh, and it starts, it starts right there in Genesis 1 and 2. So um, that the great drama of rescue uh, begins there. Um, there's a great deal of so-called creation appreciation or, quote, love of nature that prefers to look the other way when men and women appear on the scene. Genesis 2 will not permit it. Men and women are as integral to creation as the garden with its trees and rivers, its animals and birds. Several years ago, one of my students who lived a distance away and rode a crowded bus to the college each day said to his wife as he went out the door one morning, I'm just going to go out and immerse myself in God's creation today. The next day, his parting words were the same. And on the third day, she called back to him don't think you ought to, don't you think you ought to go out, you ought to go to class today. A couple of days of walking in the woods or on the beach is okay, but don't you think enough is enough? He said, oh, I've been going to class every day. Then what she said is all this business about immersing yourself in creation. Well, I spent 40 minutes on the bus each morning and afternoon. Can you think of a setting more thick with creation than that? All these people created, created in the image of God, created male and female. I never thought of that, she said. You mean you've never read Genesis? <laughs> now, see, if I said that in my house, that would not be well received, I don't think. <laughs> uh, I'm not suggesting it's easy, the maintaining of an observant Genesis connection between the animals and trees in the garden and the people in the garden, honoring the continuities in the God-formed man and woman right before us with the God-formed trees and birds around us. I'm only insisting that it is necessary. Years ago, when my children were young, our family was driving through Yellowstone National Park on holiday. Our national parks are among the great accomplishments that our not always accomplished governments have provided for us. Just as our churches and places of worship serve to sanctify time, so these parks 
have always seemed to me to mark sacred space. As they accompanied their mother and me into these beautiful and glorious stretches of protected beauty and wilderness and wildness, our children were subjected to as much biblical talk as when in church. One phrase that they heard a great deal was, leaving nothing but footprints, take nothing but pictures. It is a motto used by the Sierra Club, but it was years before our children knew that. They assumed it was a Bible verse. On this particular Yellowstone Park holiday, relishing the blessing of the sacred space, we had pulled to the side of the road to view a meadow of wildflowers. About 20 yards away, a five or six-year-old girl was picking a bouquet of fringed gentians. Gentian. The, gentian. The gentian is a stunning blue alpine flower, one of my favorites. The little girl had an innocent fistful of these beauties, probably picked for her mother. When I noticed her, I was suddenly indignant at, the, at this violation of the sacred ground. I yelled at her, don't pick the flowers. The poor little girl, terrorized by my bark, dropped the flowers and looked at me with total, total bewilderment and dismay, her face clouding over and then spilling out tears. Immediately, my children were all over me. Dad, what did you, what you did is a lot worse than what she did. How could you do that to her? The God who made the flowers also made her. You ruined her day. You probably scarred her for life. And on and on and on for the rest of the day, ruining my day. And of course, they were right. How could I be so selective in my sense of kinship with creation? How did it happen that I felt so sensitive to the fringed gentian that had been formed out of the same dust as me and so insensitive to the little girl also formed out of that same dust or even something more like my own rib? The same dust, the fringed gentian, the little girl, me. Desecration of the one is of a kind with desecration of the others. If we're going to enjoy and celebrate and live this gift of place in which the Lord has placed us, we're going to have to embrace the people around us with the same delight as we do the hawks soaring above us and the violets blooming at our feet. Men and women, children and the elderly, the beautiful and the plain, the blind and the deaf, amputees and paralytics, the mentally impaired and the emotionally distraught, each a significant and sacred detail of nature, of God's creation. Okay, so what are we learning here? Um, the two obvious things, but I'm not sure how it gets deeper than that. The two obvious things are love, love thy neighbor, okay, as you would love thyself, whoever that neighbor is, okay, and uh, a concern or care for uh, the nature that God has given us, okay. But, but so, so that comes out of out of this. Um, what's what's his deeper message what what's the measure what's the message about god 
playing in creation. Is he saying that creation itself teaches us the second commandment? And I don't know. I don't know. Well, anybody want to jump in? Uh, oh, yeah. I think you would. Go ahead. I'm unmuted. Um, well, I, I think he's making the point the fact that we, because we're made in the image of God, that we we have this intimacy, not just between ourselves, but it's this whole cycle of intimacy. And so when we look at nature, I mean, when I think of nature, I don't think people. I mean, I, the duh. <laughs> I mean, I, when I look at people, I think people, I think God loves people. But when I think of nature, I'm not thinking in terms, I'm thinking about the creation outside of people, but it's all of it. But really the pinnacle of creation, the pinnacle of all the birds and bees and flowers and trees and all that is the creation of, of men and women because we're made in God's image. Nothing else is made in God's image, only people. So there is a higher order in that. And so, so, so is he saying that when we look at people, we should think God? Image of God. We're when image we look there. at nature, we should think God? Yeah, because if we look at people and think image bearers, we are not prone to think in terms of race, of ethnicity, of uh, poor, rich. We're not prone to separate all at which like right now we need this message more than ever that we would begin to see people in the image of God that we're all image bearers there's there's one human race all made in God's image um, because of our sinfulness those divisions have occurred and I really man I'm really praying that that the high point of separation in our society at the 11 o'clock services would end. Mm -hmm. I want, I really want to see, um, man, I just want to see a change in what's happening in our churches in black and white churches, but yes. we're all image bearers. And I think at this point in time with as crazy as the world is getting Christians have, have a huge role to play and a huge responsibility um, to, to being the ones to step out, um, to showing the love of Christ, loving one another because Christ loved us. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't know what I'm going to do in my ministry right now to make that happen, but I, I, I'm praying for understanding. I'm praying for ideas, um, that uh, just on practical levels, even if it's, you know, going and knocking on doors and inviting kids to come to my class. I don't, I don't know, but I think that's the point. He's, I, I don't know. That's the point I'm getting from all this, that, that the intimacy is because we are related to God and that we're his image bearers. I'm glad you didn't unmute Sarah <laughs> or mute. I mean, I mainly mute because I cough all the time, so I don't want to interrupt. That was very helpful. Thank you for that. Thank you, good. 
I really like the, I'm, I'm just going out and immerse myself in God's creation today, whether it's on the bus watching people or out watching the birds. It's, um, you know, just being aware of the whole creation. Hmm. And Sarah, there's, I mean, it, the church is talking about working with the people, the kids at Stony Brook. Did you not hear? I say, I say you're talking about your, the church is talking about working with children at Stony Brook. So is it. Okay, you know, good. Which isn't far from your neighborhood. So I'm saying it might be something, you know, either materials or just something, a way to, to intersect. Right. But I, what I want to see happen is I don't want to see this. I don't want to see, okay, Stony Brook's over there. I want to see Stony Brook brought into our congregation. I want to see, I want to see not just black children, but I just want to see a more integrated um, uh, congregation mm -hmm. and we're not separated. Um, and I, you know, I think that the Christian- Ron is working on that now specifically. Good. Mm -hmm. With Josh, Ron and Josh are specifically mm -hmm. addressing that issue. Good. <clears throat> Well, but yeah, I think, I think the ultimate point is, and I think Sarah made it really well, is I think oftentimes for us to see God in creation uh, is sort of a, our resonating with, with nature, but often we miss it with people. Uh, and so, and yet people are the ones who are created in the image and likeness of God. So to see the intrinsic value of human beings and the dignity of human being is, is something I think really our minds, particularly in the West, have to learn and relearn, is that while we know it academically, we often evaluate the value of people on the basis of what they can produce. Uh, and if they don't seem to produce, then they seem to us to have lesser value. Uh, and, and yet that's not really the way that the Bible looks at this at all. In fact, if, you know, it may be, uh, you know, when Jesus takes up the children in his arms and blesses them, he says, you got to be like this to be my disciple. Uh, you know, that the, kind of the mark of the mark of discipleship is dependence. Uh, and yet everything in our society and culture tries to seek to make us independent, that, that we're able to care for ourselves. So that we, we often cut ourselves off from one another because it's embarrassing to be cared for. Uh, and so, you know, we, we end up doing things that are contrary to the way that God actually created us to be uh, because we've learned it from our culture and not from the scriptures. Uh, so I think he's trying to help us see beyond uh, kind of our standard way of viewing people and life uh, to seeing God's hand in each one and seeing God in each one. Uh, so, so anyway, also, <clears throat> you know, went through outside. Oh, Vicki, 
The, the other thing I'm thinking of is that in the West, we may talk about what we produce, but I think what separates me from other people sometimes is their behavior. Oh yeah. And I mean, how do we deal with that issue? It is very hard for me to see the face of God in the rage of the looters. I know it's sin. I yeah. understand that. But when I meet people, I know, my head knows God made them. But I can't help but that's <clears throat> if, if, I, if I see them acting in a manner that is harmful. Yes. And I don't know how to handle that. I don't know because I know I'm supposed to love them, but I may not love their behavior. I know love the sin or hate the sin, love the sinner, but I'm having a hard time differentiating between those two because sometimes in my mind, you are what you do. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, so how, I don't know. We're going to have to have a big conversation about that someday to help me understand how to handle all that. Yeah, I, I, I went... This may help a little bit. I don't know. But I went through a, a period of time, quite a long period of time, that did not continue to this day, but a period of time when I looked at everybody, everyone, every single person, as my brother or sister. And I would look at that person and I would say, that person is my brother. And I would look at them and say, in what way is that person like me? You know, are there, are there features or are there physical features about that person that are like me? Is there something about uh, the person's character or, or personality or something, but, but not too far back, not too far back. That person is my brother. Mm -hmm. It's an yeah. interesting way to look at people. Huh? Maybe well, I, he's saying a I little bit of do that thing. in the abstract. Yes. Yeah. Well, well yeah. when it comes do it, do it in the in the specific when you see a person. See, I don't <laughs> oh, know. I can, in other words, but and, and I can do that, and I can pass. I can look at the news, which makes me want to scream most of the time, and I can see what's going on, and I have to say to myself, remember, God created that person, and that person. We are all sinful. This is a manifestation of the sin. But I want to know, how am I supposed to relate to somebody well, who is looting and burning and rioting? I, well, I don't think you accept that as, as that's not, that is not godly behavior. I don't no. think there's, I, I don't think there's a, uh, I feel no need to accept the rioting as, as the right way to handle something. That because they're because we are broken and they are broken as well, and I would I would assume most of those rioters, I don't know, do they have a relationship with God? I don't know that you do that kind of stuff if you have a relationship with God. So they they are they're not only are they broken, they're lost. Um, and and how do we relate to that? What? How do we relate to that? I mean, you're right. I'm agreeing. Well, with I don't you. think you need. To, I don't think you have to relate to it. I think you you can expect that or that there should be justice for the people that are being harmed by by the riots. Um, but at the same time, 
Well, it's a it's a it's a much broader conversation than I'm probably wanting to get exactly. Into. That's what I'm saying. It's a big conversation. <laughs> <laughs> I I mean, it didn't just come out of nowhere. There's so many things that led up to it. Um, unjust and just misinformation and misleading. I mean, it's just it's a huge thing that that is happening. And I, I, honestly, we don't I, I don't know that. But but for the grace of God, there go I. Mm. Um, you know, I mean, we've talked about how complacent people were in Nazi Germany uh, at time. I mean, there are all kinds of atrocities that, you know, the, the Valentine's Day um, massacres in, in, in France where uh, Catholics killed Protestants 3,000 at a time when they didn't have guns. And one day they went out and killed 3,000 people. <laughs> and then went the other way, <laughs> you know. But for the grace of God, there go I. So there's still some sense, at least for me, in my heart, that these are brothers and sisters. Yeah, they're going astray. Some of them are going way bad astray, okay? They're still subject to, they still can repent. They still can be forgiven. So there's something it's a it's a big conversation. I agree, but uh, sorry, you know, I brought it up, but it's been bothering. You know, no, I think I think you are really on target, and I think the other, you know, Angelo spent his life in the law, and <clears throat> the law is something that tries to rectify what's gone wrong at some certain point. So I I think the I you know the the crazy part of this is to think. If we get rid of the law, we're going to get a, a better society. The no, law... I mean, it, that's insane. It's insane. <clears throat> and what's happening yeah. right now in Seattle, where my son Jared lives, is that the whole city block has been taken over by Antifa, and they are literally holding some business owners at a ransom to protect their businesses. I mean, oh. it's insane. Oh, yeah. So, um, I mean, hopefully... <laughs> Hopefully the law will step in at some point and and try to regain some sanity there. But I mean, I mean the only thing that's going to help. I mean, all, I've never seen our country or the world in such a desperate situation. I mean, the entire world right now. I mean, it really does feel like end times. I don't know. I don't know yeah. what's going on. But if anything, it's cause. It should be causing believers to just press in harder in their faith and to and to try to find ways to bring God's um, message of hope to this generation. Though I there's I am hopeful there are a lot of young black um, Christians that are being raised up right now to speak into the culture and they are they've got a lot of online platforms on YouTube on social media and they really are making an impact. It is very hopeful listening to them preach and teach and move for for social justice, but not in a violent way, in a godly way. Um, so I'm I'm hopeful, and they have a they have an opportunity to speak in a way that I am not able to speak. Right. What what is heartbreaking is you know so many of those looters they were once little kids. Yeah. They were, kids did they ever sit in a class and be taught god's word mm. you know, what happened to them in their families 
I mean, it, it should be breaking our hearts what is happening. Um, and most of the time, it's not breaking my heart. Most of the time, it's making me angry. Mm. Um, but, you know, I mean, we we just need to be praying and, and you know, That's fasting right. and and asking God to, to have mercy on us. <clears throat> um, it's really, it's, it's, the 60s never was anything like, uh, this was not, this is way worse than the 60s ever thought of being. This mm-hmm. is like the 60s and the pan, Spanish flu and the Vietnam War all rolled into one. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, well, someday we need to have a conversation about it. It's just, it's, the whole thing bothers me. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. Of course. It's very, at, at, at some level or another, it's all bothersome. It's just nuts. But I'm thinking here in terms of intimacy and relation and seeing the face of God in these people. And right now, for me, it's very abstract. So, oh, I hear you. Yeah, it's it's just another conversation that we could have because it is a big conversation. Yeah. Thank you all for helping me. Yeah. Well, I, I think the the issue of the role of law is is a significant one in this conversation. Uh, and. And the function of law is to help things work the way God created them to be and to restrain evil and promote righteousness. And so I think one of the hopeful things is that law is being exercised uh, with, uh, with those who were involved in George Floyd's arrest and ultimate death. Uh, again, it may not be fast enough in our own situation here, <clears throat> and again, I, I'm kind of feeling like much of what's going on is is exacerbated because this is an election year, uh, and so <clears throat> so I think everything is amplified. But Corey Jones was shot right behind my house, and ah. and it was uh, you know that that exit by the double tree. Uh, coming off of I-95 onto uh, PGA Boulevard. And so if you go by that exit, you still see the memorial there. <clears throat> but but we did not erupt into, into violent protests uh, then, thanks to the Lord. And eventually the guy, the policeman who acted inappropriately was convicted and his Paying, paying his time. Uh, <clears throat> it is, uh, I think now it's so inflamed that because things aren't happening fast enough that there are violent, violent reactions, but the law should hold all of us accountable. And I think part of the perception in the rioting community is that there is a sense of double standard that that police may be protected uh, when they do something wrong, when other people would not be protected. And so that sense of injustice, that there's two standards for, uh, for legality is, is part of what fuels the anger, doesn't justify the looting or the destruction or the blackmail, but it is, uh, I think part of what fuels these things is that there's a narrative that this fits and, and that then is used as a justification for 
all of the atrocious behavior that victimizes other people that had no direct involvement in the original incident. Uh, so, but ultimately law, I think one of the concerns for people who are uh, business owners is that there doesn't seem to be any equal justice for them. Uh, and then on top of that, I mean, because we're in the midst of this pandemic, just a week or two before those riots, there were pastors getting arrested for having church. Exactly. So, so I mean, there's there's just so much injustice all the way around on both sides, and it's being it is being amped up because of the election, and and yeah. and and it's and it's become insane. I mean, I, no. I you know, I, I mean, unless. Unless God intervenes, and I, I, I feel like he, I feel like it could be get a lot worse. Maybe he's holding it back, but maybe he's allowing. I mean, he obviously has allowed it. Yes. And something that I've thought about, Lucky, when you you've talked in the past about God getting when they hadn't observed the Sabbath, Israel, and God got the Sabbath back. Um, how do you how did you say that that he took it he he did something that gave the Sabbath, that he made the Sabbath happen. Um, you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> well, no. Yeah, no. <laughs> I'm not talking to you, Angela. I'm talking to Lucky. Uh, <laughs> hey, you're all here. <laughs> well, you know, I think, I think that what, what the resurrection does, what the cross and the resurrection do is that they, they create the new Sabbath that doesn't have evening and morning. Yeah, no, uh, no, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about in, in Israel when they had been disobedient and they hadn't, they hadn't, um, they hadn't obeyed God, and then God sent them into exile. And and you, I remember you saying something about well, God got His Sabbaths back that He. Oh, oh no, yeah, yeah. At the end of at the end of Second Chronicles, it. And Jeremiah, I think 25 and 29, it talks about that the Israelites owed Sabbath years to the land. Okay, so owed it. Okay, so that's what I, at the very beginning of this, I, I began to wonder if, if God was allowed, I mean, clearly he allowed it. Yes. Why did he allow it? And one of the things that occurred to me was maybe he has allowed this partially, if not whatever, to get back the Sabbaths that are owed to him from his people. And and I don't mean it in terms of, I don't mean it like, okay, well, we didn't do it on Sunday or Saturday, but, yes. that, that, but, that, the, but that the Christian church maybe has become complacent in, in, in their faith, in, in yes. their walk, and that we've been given this time to be shut down to to press more into our faith um to because we owe god this this life back i don't know i don't know if i'm right in that and i don't know if that's from the god no that's really an interesting interesting perspective and insight um i i would have you look at at chapter 36 of uh, second chronicles where it kind of uses that language um, and that's Second Chronicles 36 in the Hebrew Bible is the last chapter of the Hebrew Bible. That's where it ends, not Malachi. 
that's Septuagint. So, well, I think maybe we can get to the end of this section and stop at the grounding text in, uh, in John's gospel. So here we go. The two creation stories are the same in that the subject in each is God at work in creation. Genesis 1, God, Elohim, the sum of all created powers, is the exclusive subject of all the verbs, 35 verbs, used in the seven days of creation. Creation in time. Genesis 2, the Lord God, Elohim, compounded this time with Yahweh, the unique and personal name revealed to Moses, is the exclusive subject of the verbs that form man, plant a garden, assign work, give commands, form animals and birds, release the gift of language, and shape a relationship of communion and intimacy, creation in place. So again, time and place. Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 work from the same base. When we wake up in the morning and look around us, wondering who we are, where we are, how we got here, where we came from, how we fit into what's going on, the answer is the same. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1.1, and in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, Genesis 2.4. If we are going to live as intended, which is to glorify God, we cannot do it abstractly or in general. We have to do it under the particularizing conditions in which God works, namely time and place, here and now. Genesis 1 and 2 reveal the forms that are formative for our living. Genesis 1 locates us formatively in time, and Genesis 2 locates us formatively in place. Hans Urs von Balthasar has written passionately and at length on the necessity for understanding and appreciating form as fundamental to life with its focus in the Christian life. Quote, what is a person without a life form? That is to say, without a form which he has chosen for his life so that his life becomes the soul of the form and the form becomes the expression of his soul. We are not disembodied angels. We have a street address where God can find us. We have 10 fingers and 10 toes, two eyes, two ears and a nose, along with assorted other items that form a body that is emphatically us. That's enough for a start. A primary but often shirked task of the Christian in our society and culture is to notice, to see in detail, the sacredness of creation. The marks of God's creative work are all around us and in us. We live surrounded by cherubim singing, holy, holy, holy. It is easy to miss it. Sin graffiti disfigure both land and people. Death is a frequent visitor. Blasphemies assault our ears. 
and our sin-blurred eyes and sin-dulled ears miss the glory that is right before us. But no excuses. We have a huge responsibility and an enormous privilege to live daily in such a way that we give witness to the immense and sacred gifts of time and place. The good news of Jesus Christ, quote, the firstborn of creation, has its context in these Genesis-revealed gifts of time and place. It is far too common in our fast-paced and technologically depersonalized society, impatient and zealous to get out the gospel message, to skip the Genesis context and slap together something improvisatory, I don't know. Yeah. So that we can quickly get on with our urgent mission. More often than not, these improvisations are dismissive of the intricacies and beauties of God's gifts of time and place. But the good news entrusted to God's people is the good news of Jesus Christ, the firstborn of, yes, creation. Jesus' life and work crucifixion and resurrection are thoroughly established and worked out in the creation gifts of time and place. And we dare not put asunder what he joined together. And, you know, I think that's the, maybe the overwhelming impression of going to study in Israel is these events that we read about, study about, think about, pray about, all happened somewhere at some time in a certain real historical context with real people doing real things. And, and I think, again, because we tend to worship God academically until it becomes a different thing, that seeing it, uh, being there, Kind of thinking about what the time means and what the place means does something inside of us uh, that seems to be a nearly universal experience of people, whether they are sort of evangelical Bible types or not, is that there's an overpowering sense of reality that, that something happened in this strange place that changed the shape of human human history, uh, and and has something to do with me. So, I think there we'll have to leave it. We got a closer. I I've got one. that lucky on I have Second Chronicles thirty six, and I think yeah. what Sarah was talking about thirty six twenty one. The land enjoyed its Sabbath rest all the time of its desolation. It rested until the 70 years were completed in fulfillment of the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. Is that what you were and, thinking about? Yes, and then if you look at the cross-references, it shows a cross-reference to Jeremiah 29.10, Leviticus 26.34 and 25.4, and Jeremiah 25.12. So go back and look at those cross-references because all of those are tied into what was owed the land. Uh, 
And so God eventually let the consequences of their disobedience fall and they repaid the debt that they owed. I will so, go back and look at that. Yes. Joanne has the Thank you. Joanne, you got the book? I have the book. Thank you. Okay. You look like you have a butterfly coming out of you. I know. It looks like a hat, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I need to move the butterfly over. <laughs> this is entitled Faith. My God, I bless thee that thou hast given me the eye of faith to see thee as father, to know thee as a covenant God, to experience thy love planted in me. For faith is the grace of union by which I spill out my entitlement to thee. Faith casts my anchor upwards where I trust in thee and engage thee to be my Lord. Be pleased to live and move within me, breathing in my prayers, inhabiting my praises, speaking in my words, moving in my actions, living in my life, casting me to grow, causing me to grow in grace. Thy bounty, bounteous goodness has helped me believe, but my faith is weak and wavering. It's light dim, it's steps tottering, it's increased slow, it's backslidings frequent. It should scale the heavens, but lies groveling in the dust. Lord, fan this divine spark into glowing flame. When faith sleeps, my heart becomes an unclean thing, the font of every loathsome desire, the cage of unclean lusts, all fluttering to escape the noxious tree of deadly fruit, the open wide wayside of earthly tares. Lord, awake faith to put forth its strength until all heaven fills my soul and all impurity is cast out. Amen. 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 Have we read that one before? I never remember which, they never sound the same when they're read by different people. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. What is the